Welcome to this week's episode of Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House, and on the podcast today we bring you another live recording from Antidote 2018, our excellent annual festival of ideas, action and change. American writer and author Ta-Nehisi Coates is best known for the New York Times bestseller Between the World and Me, which created a unique blend of reportage, historical analysis and personal narrative. As national correspondent for The Atlantic, he has established himself as a major force in American intellectual life and is one of the most influential essayists on race, culture and politics writing today. He also writes on the Marvel Comics Black Panther series and scored a credit on the blockbuster Black Panther movie. At Antidote with the ABC's Richard Feidler, Ta-Nehisi Coates talked about his violent childhood in Baltimore, how becoming a father changed him and how his work now might change the way we all think about race. A lot of Black Panther comic book fans right in the front row, <laughs> right off the get-go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you, Tanahasi, to our little shed at the end of Benelong Point. Oh, this is beautiful. It's, this is, it's a lot of people. A lot of people, <laughs> all over the place. Uh, I'd love you to begin by doing a reading from Between the World and Me, which I think is a stunning book. It's mm. not just persuasive, it's very beautifully written, too. I'd just love you to read a first chapter. Uh, apart from the, one of the earlier parts of your book, where you're addressing your son, your teenage son. The portion I'm going to read about is about fear. Uh, one of my great, great frustrations in the lead up to writing this book uh, was how much of uh, the politic and the talk around African Americans in the country is about African American anger, black anger, and there is not enough about black fear. And I am afraid I feel the fear most acutely whenever you leave me, but I was afraid long before you, and in this, I was unoriginal. When I was your age, the only people I knew were black, and all of them were powerfully, adamantly, dangerously afraid. I had seen this fear all my young life, though I had not always recognized it as such. It was always right in front of me, the fear was there in the extravagant boys of my neighborhood in their large rings and medallions, their big puffy coats and full-length fur leather collars, which was their armor against the world. They would stand on the corner of Gwyn Oak and Liberty or Cold Spring and Park Heights or just outside Mundarmin Mall with their hands dipped in Russell sweats. I think back on those boys now and all I see is fear. And all I see is them girding themselves against the ghosts of the bad old days when the Mississippi mob gathered around their grandfathers so that the branches of the black body might be torched, then cut away. The fear lived on in their practice bop, their slouching denim, their big t-shirts, the calculated angle of their baseball caps, a catalog of behaviors and garments enlisted to inspire the belief that these boys were in firm possession of everything they desired. I saw it in their customs of war. I was no older than five, sitting out on the front steps of my home on Woodbrook Avenue, watching two shirtless boys circle each other close and buck shoulders. From then on, I knew that there was a ritual to a street fight, bylaws and codes that in their very need attested to all the vulnerability of the black teenage bodies. I heard the fear in the first music I ever knew, the music that pumped from boom boxes full of grand boasts and bluster, 
The boys who stood out on Garrison and Liberty and up on Park Heights, they loved this music because it told them against all evidence and odds that they were masters of their own lives, their own streets, and their own bodies. I saw it in the girls and their loud laughter and their gilded bamboo earrings that announced their names thrice over. And I saw it in their brutal language and hard gaze, how they would cut you with their eyes and destroy you with their words for the sin of playing too much. Keep my name out your mouth, they would say. I would watch them after school, how they squared off like boxers, Vaselined up, earrings off, Reeboks on, and leaped at each other. I felt the fear in the visit to my Nana's home in Philadelphia. You never knew her. I barely knew her. But what I remember is her hard manner, her rough voice. And I knew that my father's father was dead, and that my Uncle Oscar was dead, and that my Uncle David was dead, and that each of these instances was unnatural. And I saw it in my own father who loves you, who counsels you, who slipped me money to care for you. My father was so very afraid. I felt it in the sting of his black leather belt, which he applied with more anxiety than anger. My father, who beat me as if someone might steal me away, because that is exactly what was happening all around us. Everyone had lost a child, somehow to the streets, somehow to jail, somehow to drugs, somehow to guns. It was said that these lost girls were sweet as honey and would not hurt a fly. It was said that these lost boys had just received a GED and had begun to turn their lives around. And now they were gone, and their legacy was a great fear. Have they told you this story? When your grandmother was 16 years, when your grandmother was 16 years old, a young man knocked on her door. The young man was your Nana Joe's boyfriend. No one else was home. Your grandmother allowed this young man to sit and wait until your Nana Joe returned, but your great-grandmother got there first. She asked the young man to leave. Then she beat your grandmother terrifically one last time so that she might remember how easily she could lose her body. Your grandmother never forgot. I remember her clutching my small hand tightly as we crossed the street. She would tell me that if I ever let go and were killed by an onrushing car, she would beat me back to life. <laughs> when I was six, my mother and father took me to a local park. I slipped from their gaze and found a playground. Your grandparents spent anxious minutes looking for me. When they found me, dad did what every parent I knew would have done. He reached for his belt. I remember watching him in a kind of daze, awed at the distance between punishment and offense. Later, I would hear it in his voice, either I can beat him or the police. Maybe that saved me. Maybe it didn't. All I know is the violence rose from the fear like smoke from a fire, and I cannot say whether that violence, even administered in fear and love, sounded the alarm or choked us at the exit. What I know is that fathers who slammed their teenage boys for sass would then release them to streets where their boys employed or were subject to the same justice. And I knew mothers who belted their girls, but the belt could not save these girls from drug dealers twice their age. We, the children, employed our darkest humor to cope. 
We stood in the alley where we shot basketballs through hollowed crates and cracked jokes on the boy whose mother wore him out with a beating in front of his entire fifth grade class. We sat on the number five bus headed downtown, laughing at some girl whose mother was known to reach for anything, cable wires, extension cords, pots, pans. We were laughing, but I know that we were afraid of those who loved us most. so beautifully written. Are you thinking of James Baldwin when you were writing that book? Um, well, I was thinking of James Baldwin before I wrote the book. And I was um, uh, obviously, you know, deeply, deeply inspired by Baldwin and mostly um, by his ability to, to switch uh, register, if I can just be technical for a moment. Um, James Baldwin had this beautiful ability to shift from personal narrative to broad uh, analysis of, of the country at large, to a kind of repertorial journalistic voice. And, and he did it seamlessly, you know, like, 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 a, like a great singer. When I, you know, read Ball, when I think of listening to Marvin Gaye and how Marvin Gaye could just move around like it was nothing. And I always wanted to be able to, I still want, and I always wanted, still want to be able to write like that, to make it look effortless. So, you know, as, as an, um, aesthetic inspiration, definitely. He would write these long, loping, beautiful, almost undulating sentences, you know, and he would employ like, like the comma, almost like a, like a drum. And, you know, it never ran on. Like you could always follow it all the way through. So yeah, it was a huge inspiration. The human body is an ongoing uh, theme against mentioned again and again in your book. What, how did you arrive at that idea to write about the body in that way? Well, I took a, uh, when, I, when I was uh, in, in school at, at Howard University, which is a historically black uh, college uh, in, um, in uh, Washington, D.C., and I only mention that because I've come to realize that these institutions are actually very specific, that they don't have historically black colleges in France where I live, for instance, and maybe not here in Australia, I don't think. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but you guys have compulsory voting, as I was told, so that's, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would take that. Um, but, you know, I went to this, you know, wonderful, you know, uh, historic uh, university uh, where uh, the population is probably about 95% black, 10,000 of the, you know, most beautiful, most intelligent black people uh, from around the world, really, that you ever wanted to meet. And at that university, I was a history major, and I took a class uh, on the history of women in, in America, and I had this professor by the name of Eileen Boris, who was not black, in fact, and she kept talking when she talked about women and oppression about the body, the body, the body. And it sounded really weird to me at first, you know. And then after a few sessions, I, I finally got it. What she was doing was she was emphasizing the physicality of oppression, that it is not, you know, spiritual, that it's direct, that it's violent, and that it's forceful. And so, I, you know, it's a, a well-worn concept in feminist studies, and I, I borrowed it for the book. The life of a man named Prince Jones is part of this book. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me about him. Who was he and how, who was he to you? Yeah, he was a buddy of mine. Um, he went to Howard uh, with me. He was, you know, uh, I always felt just the complete opposite of me. Um, I, also. Oh, oof. Uh, I, you know, and I, I just, I'm, this is not to be self-deprecating. I'm just giving you, you know, the portrait of who, who I was when I, I came to Howard University. When you're young, uh, at least when I grew up, you basically had three ways of, you know, achieving your self-esteem. You were a great student, you were a great athlete, or you were well appreciated by the opposite sex. I was none of those things <laughs> um, at all, <laughs> you know. Um, I was nice, 
I was generally well liked. <laughs> you know, I was a decent, decent enough dude. Um, you know, uh, but I had, you know, I was like the sort of kid I, you know, had been, you know, kicked out of a magnet school in 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 uh, my hometown of Baltimore. My parents argued me back in. I got kicked out again. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, I got arrested uh, for threatening a teacher. I just whoa, yeah. ninth grade, you got arrested for threatening a teacher. I did. I did. Yes. Uh, yeah. What was the nature of the threat? Um, he humiliated me in front of the class, and I grew up um, in a neighborhood. I, like, I wasn't a tough guy. You know, that wasn't who I was. It wasn't like, you know, I don't say that to say like I was, you know, yeah. any sort of tough guy or anything. But I, I grew up in a kind of place where you really only had your self-respect. Like, that was it. You know what I mean? And so for somebody to humiliate you... Um, was almost always to invite some sort of physical confrontation. Did you do that with words or anything else? Or how did you do I, that? I think I told him if he yelled at me again, I was going to punch him in the mouth. I think that was what I said. Right. And I felt it. I you, really felt it. You get detention for that in this country. You get yeah, arrested nah, in America? Yeah, you get arrested. We have school police. They call the police on you and handcuff you. They handcuffed you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. So you're, so you're this nice kid who's not particularly any this thing, yeah. this or that in school. Right. What about Prince Jones? Was so he, he was the opposite. He was prince, the prince. prince would was never, he? he was the prince. He would never be arrested for threatening. He'd have no cause to threaten a teacher. Um, but he was a good, good dude. You know, he's you know, tall, beautiful, uh, intelligent, brilliant, you know, well-read, uh, deeply, deeply religious, which is a thing that's very, very much prized in America. Um, and in 2000... Uh, shortly after the birth of my son, in fact, uh, Prince Jones was on his way to see his uh, daughter. He was at his fiance's home, and he was gunned down by a police officer about 200 yards away. How long had that police officer been following him for? Oh, I don't know how long, but he followed him through three jurisdictions. And the crazy thing was he was allegedly looking for... Uh, a drug dealer, and the description of the drug dealer was like com the complete opposite of Prince. Uh, I believe the drug dealer was like five foot ten. Uh, excuse me, he was not. He was looking for someone who had, who had allegedly stole a gun. And the guy he was looking for was like five foot ten. Prince was like six three, six four. Guy was kind of stocky. Prince was very, very was a, was a thin dude. And what did the cops say in, in his defense for why he had to shoot your friend six times? Um, <laughs> boy, it sounds so absurd when you say it like that. Um, his defense was that Prince had backed his Jeep into uh, the cop, which I'm quite sure he did because the cop was following him and was dressed like a drug dealer. Um, that was his assignment for the night, you know? Um, so if you follow me uh, through three jurisdictions and I'm on the way to my fiance's house and you come out of your car as the cop did with his gun pointed, drawn and pointed at Prince, um, no badge shown. Um, I might assume you have ill intent towards me. Um, and the cop shot Prince. Uh, he did not lose his job. Um, no charges were pressed. And life went on without Prince. What, what does that mean about the way your friend's death is recorded? Does that mean he's, he's recorded as having been shot while trying to kill a police yes. officer? Yes, exactly. And I, I think that's what infuriated his mother more than anything. Were there any witnesses to this other no, than the officer? only the officer. <laughs> How convenient. And, um, and, and when you, where, where were you when you heard the news that your friend had been... I, I saw it in the paper. I saw it in the paper. Um, I saw that uh, the police from that particular jurisdiction had killed somebody, and they killed a lot of people, so I wasn't particularly surprised by that. 
Um, I, I can't emphasize to you how common, not just police brutality, but police killing people is, in a, it's extremely, extremely, extremely common. I, I cannot overstate, like, how many guns there are in America. Um, I know you guys had a problem with that, like, in the past, but, like, I just, like, there are more guns than people, many times over, you know, um, and so... That the police had killed somebody was not particularly shocking to me, even back then. This is years before Black Lives Matter. And then I read that it was a Howard student, and then, you know, I started to pay attention then, and then one day I saw the picture, and it was Prince. How distressed were you by that? Um, I was really distressed. I cannot tell you how angry I was when nothing was done. I was just, like, I seethed about it, you know, for a very, very long time. And one reason I wrote this book was so that... Um, that officer and that police department, and by extension, my country would not erase Prince Jones uh, from history, um, which is, as far as I'm concerned, what they sought to do. You mentioned before in your reading about fear, that fear that mm -hmm. is propels, the thing that propels young men towards violence mm -hmm. in this case. Did, did this story uh, also give you a kind of a, la la a feeling of being lacerated by that fear again? Or, or was your fear for your son at this point? Yeah, it was both. I mean, it was just a reminder, you know what I mean, um, of a fundamental injustice. Uh, again, like our laws to this very day stipulate, I mean, you have to get this, that if, and I, I am not exaggerating, if a police officer believes his life to be or her life to be in danger, they can kill you. Believes, not objectively demonstrated, if they believe it. Now, who's a mind reader? So you put a police officer on, I think my life was in danger. Well, I mean, if you believed it, then you know what I mean? It, it doesn't take much to see how this quickly becomes a license for murder. This brings us to the talk that parents have with their kids. Mm -hmm. My kids are Eurasian. I had to have a talk. It's nothing quite like the same kind of talk mm. you would have had with your son. But we have a history in this country with a white Australia policy and mm -hmm. um, historic racism as well. Nothing quite, it's not quite the same thing, but is this the talk that every African-American parent, African parent more or less has to have with their kids? if they're caring for Yeah, but I think um, if you're doing it right, you, you, <laughs> you don't have one talk. Right. <laughs> I mean, you don't break it to them at 14. <laughs> yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, you have it's a, a bad day where something, something is said, and, they yeah. go, and the kid comes to you and go, what the hell was that about? Yeah. And you have to tell them. Well, in my, in my house, we were having a series of conversations. Right. Um, a series of talks, if, if you will. Um, and yeah, you had better, or you've been a very irresponsible parent. You were in your mid-twenties when you became a dad. Mm. I reckon you really know fear when you become a parent. Yeah, you uh, do. Did it, how did that change you, becoming a father in your uh, I think it aged me about 10 years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, my son was born when I was 24, and I turned 34, like, the next day. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I cannot, I mean, I just, like, and that was kind of good. I wasn't doing anything with my 20s. I was going around getting drunk, getting high. You know, I was, I, you know, I was writing, but besides that, I, I was kind of aimless. And I think, like, um, well, I'll just speak for myself as a young man, I would have done a lot of harmful things to myself that I would not do knowing that there were people who were going to be hurt by those harmful things. Um, and so it, it probably made me slow down a lot you know what I mean, and, and be much more concerned because it was always clear to me that um, I could do certain things, but my son was going to suffer for them if I, if, I, if I did. There was a chance of that. It is Father's day-to-day -day kind of schmaltzy <laughs> mm -hmm. segue, I know, but uh, were you shocked once your son was born by the, 
sudden shocking on onrush of affection and sense of protectiveness towards him. Like, you're told when you're gonna become a dad that this fascinating stranger is about to come into your life and mm. you don't know who that person is. It's this kind of baby with an X in the middle of it, really. And then the child arrives mm -hmm. and you get that shock. Did you have that? I always had it. I had it from the moment uh, Kenyatta told me she was pregnant. I mean, I, I had that. No, it wasn't like that for me. Like, right right the get-go, you had it? Yeah, yeah, no, I felt it pretty. I, but I think around. I, like, I, I felt like, I think I kind of felt like I, well, not felt like, if I look back on I think I kind of needed him. You know, again, I mean, fatherhood, you know, I just went through this, you know, whole thing. And it's, you know, funny, like, um, you know, these three things I, I was not good at. But what happened when Samari was born um, was I immediately became good at something. Uh. Like, immediately. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, What wow. was that? I mean, I could be a decent father. I actually could change diapers. I could, you know what I mean, make a bottle. I actually could do, there was this thing that was dependent on me for life. And I was not so bad caring for it, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that was, you know, we had a period uh, for a while where um, my wife, my partner at that point, she was uh, working in New York as we were trying to move up to New York. And so Samari must have been about eight, nine months. And you know, it would be like a week and it would just be me and him. And I could do that. But that was the thing I could actually do for all of the fucking up and screwing up that I had done. Like I wasn't screwing this up, which was like a revelation. I think I needed that. <laughs> so then there's the talk, or a series of talks, as you put it, or this is, this is kind of the talk as well, this mm. book. What are the key, the key things, I'm asking you to summarize your book in a couple of lines, I know, but what are some of the, the key things you really wanted your son to understand in having written this book? Well, I wanted him to understand the thing that white people in America do not understand, and that is that you're not a god. Um, you're vulnerable, you know? Um, you can lose your life, so you best to, you know, uh, treasure it you know, and be, be careful about it. And then I wanted to understand why it was that he, as a black person in America, why that was more so true for him, but, but particularly. Um, and I wanted the reader to understand that because, you know, by the time this book was published, Samari was uh, 15, 14, 15 years old. So, I mean, this was, this was no, there were no revelations in that, in that book for Samari. Um, but for the reader, um, I think there are things that if you were black, that you feel that at the point in time I was trying to write this book, and I guess to some extent even now, uh, you don't have the ability to give voice. The whole entire range of, of, of white humanity in America is given voice. It's on the movies, it's in the commercials, white people, white people, white people, in all ranges and facets and emotional feeling. And I just, I really wanted to give uh, voice to a particular feeling uh, that, 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 that black people have that I felt like was not given voice at that point. How about um, pointing him to what you think an honorable life is? Mm. What advice did you have for him on that? Be good. I, mean, I was always pretty simple about that. Be, be good, be good. You know, how do, how do you wanna be treated? You know, uh, treat, treat people as such. Um, that was just sort of, you know, constant, basic sort of parenting. I, you know, he's a smart kid, right? And so, I, to this very day, in fact, one of the big things, and he was clearly smart, was, well, our problem in the kind of class he was being raised in is um, kids are taught that their intelligence means more than it actually does. Um, intelligence is nice, it's good, it's important. I don't know that it's the most important quality in a human being. Um, I would argue, and I argued often to him, that wisdom is actually much more important. Um, and oftentimes what happens with intelligent people and intelligent children 
we're repeatedly told that they're intelligent is they don't recognize the importance of wisdom. They think they can, you know, reason everything out. So I, I really tried to get him to buy into the notion that just by default of his age, he just didn't have much wisdom. And that was okay because one day he would, you know, but that he should not think that because he can reason his way through something, that's actually, you know, what's going to happen. We have a, a plague of that in America. We have a plague of that among people who um, advertise themselves as, as, as intellectuals. They think because, you know, um, they have the ability to reason quickly that they actually know more than they do. Let's flip the fatherhood thing around at the moment and talk about your dad, mm. the remarkable Paul Coates, mm -hmm. Vietnam veteran, a former Black Panther, and a publisher. Uh, I'm going to quote you hear from your book, The Beautiful Struggle, where you write this about your dad. Dad worked seven days a week. He outlawed eating on Thanksgiving under pain of lecture. He disavowed air conditioning, VCRs, and Atari. He made us cut the grass with a hand-powered mower. In the morning, he'd play national public radio and solicit our opinions just to contravene and debate. <laughs> what kind of things did your dad tell you about the world you were going to have to live in? I mean, he was like a, um, so like the thing you have to know about my dad was that I, I have six brothers and sisters and I'm the youngest of a pack that, you know, were born basically within four years. And among those, we have for the most part different mothers. And most of my brothers and sisters for varying portions of their life, but for most of their lives lived with their mothers. And I was the first of my dad's children to be under my dad's complete and total tutelage, um, <laughs> much to my great distress. You know, it was no, I'm going over my mom's house. Like, that just, that, that didn't exist. And so um, he, more than anything, like, taught me, like, like, to question. I can't explain what it means to be, like, six years old and have to go to school and explain to your teacher why you can't say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, <laughs> and you're not like a, like, there's no religious thing. Like, you actually have to be able to articulate. I, I like, have to explain to people why um, you're not eating on Thanksgiving or why, you know, you're not dressing up on Halloween or why uh, you don't get anything for Christmas. Um, and I like think... Christmas was out too, was it? Oh, Christmas was completely out. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, my, my dad felt like Christmas was a... Uh, and, I mean, I think he was correct, a commercial uh, uh, abomination. <laughs> what a, what a, well, he's right, of course. Yeah. But, but, oh, come on, you all like presents of Christmas, <laughs> you filthy, filthy hypocrites, all of you. <laughs> God Almighty, yeah, I'm against Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, Qu uh, Kwanzaa? Is that you? No, that was out too because that really? was for, that was for weak people who couldn't deal with the fact that they got no no Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it wasn't wasn't no wasn't no imitations, man. I mean, you know the thing about my it was like you were constantly thinking. Like I mean, there was never a moment where you could just go along with the crowd. <laughs> it's just like, man, can't we just chill and just be like everybody else for a second? And <laughs> that did not happen. You everything had to be evaluated. Everything. Like he's making you a perfect journalist. He's teaching you how to be a, a skeptic of absolutely. Everything. Yeah, yeah, I think between that and my mom, who was um, big on writing, it was absolutely just, she was a school teacher and just really, really huge on writing. I think um, between the two of them, you know, from my dad, I got my, my you know, like a deep sense of skepticism. Um, and from my mom, you know, I, I got writing. How about punishment? You mentioned there he produced his belt. Um, yeah. Tell me the story about <laughs> the day you and your brother broke the bed boards in oh, right. the house. Um, so one of the, I think one of the tough things about like when I grew up, and I don't, I don't know where Australia is in this debate over, over corporal punishment, but I, you know, I was born in 1975, 
everybody I knew and everybody I grew up around got beat, everyone. It was no, you know what I mean? It was no movement to say this is wrong or this is bad or this is a, it just didn't, it wasn't even in the, you know what I mean? The, 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 the side, it was very different when Samari was born, for instance. Um, but that, that wasn't a debate. So uh, my dad, I, I guess we were different because I had a dad in the house, you know, compared to most people in my neighborhood. But, I, you know, I don't know that I perceived him as particularly harsh. Um, but what he was was inventive. Um, <laughs> and so uh, one time, uh, me and my older brother uh, were wrestling, and we broke the bed. Um, I don't, why were we wrestling in our parents' bed? Stupid. Couldn't go wrestle on our own bed. Um, it was there. It was there. Yeah. And we snapped it and we tried to set it and make it right. And <laughs> this is wrong on so many levels. Um, and my older brother says to me, listen, if anybody asks about it, you just say, we don't know what happened. <laughs> That's not the worst part. The worst part is when my dad woke me up first and asked me what happened, I said, I don't know what happened. And then when he woke my brother up and asked him what happened, he said, we broke the bed. <laughs> <laughs> So my dad made us go outside. It was like 2 in the morning. He made us go outside and wrestle. And then he went to bed. <laughs> and my mom had to come in and, and, and get us and tell us to go to bed. You know, famously, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X had different views on the role of violence in self-defense mm -hmm. in, in that struggle. Where did your dad sit on that, and what did he tell you about that? Oh, he believed in violence, very much so. He believed in defending yourself. Um, and, you know, when I was a child, the, the place that that was most manifested was in the neighborhood. You know, um, both of my parents, it was a, a strong, you know, fight them or fight me sort of thing. So what kind of, what kind of checklist, I suppose, did you have in your head that you'd have to run through before you could even step out of the house in the morning to protect oh, yourself? Oh, Lord. Um, once again, I, I cannot, you know, emphasize, and, and I, I, just, I just don't want to presume things about, um, about, about Australia. I'm not saying that these problems are not here, um, but, you know, I'm only speaking from the, 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 the little bit I know. Um, being American, and so, um, and how generally out of whack I think this is compared to other places in America. In, in, in the kind of America I grew up in, it was intensely, intensely violent on, on every level. Gun violence was a constant um, struggle, but also just the fact that, you know, you know, you, you getting jumped by somebody because they didn't live in, you know, they were from a different neighborhood. So there was this constant layering of yourself. Um, to broadcast this notion that, that, that you were not afraid, and excuse my language, you were not to be fucked with. Um, and so that went to, you know, how you, you know, wore, you know, your cap, how you, you know, wore your jacket, you know, how you wore your, uh, uh, your, your backpack, uh, how many kids you walked to school with, where those kids were from, how they looked, whether you should smile, whether you should not smile who you shook hands with, who you did not, uh, such that by the time you, you, know, you, you got to school and got to you know, the, your lunch period, a third of your brain was obsessed with your own safety. And then you know, when you got out of school, which way were you going to go home? You know, where are you going to cut through the woods? Where are you going to go down the hill? Where are you going to go this you know, really uh, uh, wild route I used to take, where you actually ended up somehow catching a bus home, even though you lived 10 minutes away from the school? Um, it, it, it was a constant. 
comic books sound like they were some kind of refuge for you or, or a, a place where your imagination could run free. I read a lot of comics, mm -hmm. still do even today, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Uh, I know you read X Factor and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. How about Black Panther? Was that around at the time? Because that's no, there was no. The, well, no, this was uh, Black Panther. You're right. It's more sixties and seventies. There was no Black Panther title when I was uh, a kid reading comic books. What do when you did encounter that as a comic book and this whole idea of uh, black sci-fi, if you like, this right. whole other world, which where secretly people are living kind of like almost a hundred years in the future. Um, you know, the funny thing for me was, for whatever reason. I never pictured the people who I was reading in comic books as white. I didn't imagine Peter Parker as white. I mean, he obviously is white. But I, I think it has to be, and especially the X-Men. I mean, it was, it was important to me that Storm was black. But I just, I didn't think about, like, Wolverine is white. Because they're misfits, that's why, aren't they? I think so. I think, and, and that's how Marvel writes. Like, a lot of their characters, like, they're kind of outsiders to society. And so, you know, um, when I'm going to this imaginary world, what, what I know about being black, you know, on some almost, I guess, psychological level, I, I understood this, that being black was not about, you know, my hair. It wasn't about my, my skin complexion. There were black people who had all kinds of hair where I lived. There were black people who had all kinds of skin, you know, uh, 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 complexions. Black people with brown eyes, black people with blue eyes, green eyes. Um, it was about the experience of being alien, of being outside, of being a pariah, of being an untouchable. And that was very much a theme, you know, through the comic books that, that, that I was attracted to. Uh, and so I, I didn't picture them as white, weirdly enough. I'm going to jump right ahead now, uh, just for time purposes, really. Mm -hmm. I'm going to unfortunately skip over Howard uh, University at those years, just to come right to, to closer to the present day, where you're an essayist, uh -huh. and you're writing stuff in the Atlantic that's being seen and President Obama wants to meet you. <laughs> That's a hell of a thing. That's a, a big jump from the kid reading X-Men comics, I know, to, to, to oh, being- He read comics too. So. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm no, saying I, he did, Obama did. No, I'm talking in terms of narrative terms. Oh, Obama's a comics guy? Oh, he read comics, yeah. Wow, yeah. I have to think about that for a while. <laughs> uh, when that ha once you actually had the meeting with Obama, trying to put aside the dazzle of being in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. room with the most powerful person in the room. What qualities did he have that really struck you once you met him? I mean, for all I just said about wisdom, he was extraordinarily intelligent. He's the most intelligent person in the room. And it was um, when you grow up in a uh, society where um, in, in America, racism is, is heavily dependent on the idea that black people are less intelligent. And you walk into a room and it's nothing besides you except you know, white reporters and they are asking questions about their specific area, be it the environment, be it the economy, be it relations with China, be it the Middle East, and he can answer each one and seem you know, almost smarter than them. It was a tremendous thing, you know, almost like, um, and, and what I had to do, the difficult thing was to, because there's a black part of you that's like, yeah, that's right, show them, show them. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but there's a, the, the writer part of you and the journalist part of you and the reason why you're in that room and you're not in that room to cheerlead. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so like you have to like, it's like difficult, you know what I mean, to like shift out, but you, you really have to, you know, make that shift out. 
you know, make sure that, that, that you're, you know, challenging and pushing, et cetera. I think that many Americans realize is how extremely popular he was outside of the United States. Mm. In this country, his polling figures were always sky high. Mm. It was a relief to see someone responsible and intelligent in that job after George W. Bush. <laughs> um, it really was. Because the world has to live with America's carelessness right. quite often. That's, that's and uh, so, so we watch that sort of stuff very carefully. The other thing that, uh, me personally, I responded to him with generationally. Mm. He's the first Gen X mm. president who mm. spoke with irony, read comic books, as you say, mm -hmm. all those things. Did you respond to him generationally as well? Yeah, I mean, he was like a hip-hop fan, so that was different. Mm. Um, and I think, like, with... I guess, you know, before him, it would have been like Bill Clinton. And it was always like this kind of performative blackness that always struck me as kind of fake. Um, I think there were people who were delighted just to see that, you know. But for me, you know, being a, a little younger, it always felt a little uh, patronizing to me. I also thought that um, he was, and I just have to stress, like this was really, really unusual. I mean, he was incredibly comfortable in black skin, being black. You know, um, I think a lot of us who thought that there was going to be, uh, if there were to be a first black president, um, would not be comfortable around Jay-Z and Beyonce, would not, um, I have to be, you know, straight about this, would not have an African-American wife, and certainly not an African-American wife of the complexion of his actual wife from the South Side, who talked like she talked, you know, who danced and did the Dougie, you know, like, it, you didn't expect that. That wasn't how it was supposed to happen. You know, it was supposed to happen by some guy who was completely, you know, uh, assimilated. Um, and so it was, it was shocking to see. Another thing that was shocking was the level of intransigence towards his government. Yeah. This guy is literally trying to save capitalism, I suppose, in yes, the United that's exactly, States. Yes, that's true. And is being met with incredible intransigence from right. the opposition party. What do you think is at the source of that intransigence? Is it fear of a black president, <laughs> or fear of a party that votes, uh, that represents African-American voters like that? Well, you can't separate the two. Um, the problem is that uh, America is not a country with a side dish of white supremacy. It is a country with white supremacy running right through the core. Um, America was white supremacist before it was America. I don't mean that as a metaphor. Uh, African-Americans uh, begin their existence uh, in the continental you know, uh, North America in Virginia in 1619, almost 400 years from this very, very date, you know, roughly 150 years before there was in America. What I'm trying to say is it was baked in uh, from the jump. And this population of, of enslaved black people uh, was not an incidental population. In fact, in several states in the South, it was the majority of people living in those states. Uh, at the start of the Civil War, the, the collection of them, four million, constituted the greatest source of, source of wealth in the entire country. And one of the great sources of wealth in the entire world, in fact. And so this, this was not, you know, a, 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 a blackness, and ideas of blackness are not minor in America. It's one of the problems when we get into a, you know, this conversation about people of color in America. Black people in America are not just another people of color. They have a kind of specificity. And so uh, for there to be a, a black president um, in America did probably what, honestly, I probably should have expected it to do. It, it, it drove a substantial number of white people in the country crazy, as it should have been. I mean, it makes sense that it did. 
I'm going to ask you to give Ta uh, ta some questions in just a minute. Uh, we've got microphones with numbers on them around the place. If you'd like to ask him a question, please line up at the mics and we'll go to those in a minute. Um, uh, just before we go to that, I just want to ask you another question. That there was that amazing spectacle at the White, ha the, uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner mm. where President Obama humiliated Donald Trump, mm -hmm. who was sitting in the audience. Mm -hmm. It was very funny, you know. Mm -hmm. When I went around, you know, you know, we were all standing around the office laughing at this, because mm -hmm. it, was, it was very funny. What do you make of that spectacle of a very, very intelligent and funny president, black president, making fun of that strange orange man in the room? I mean, it was funny. Yeah, it was. It was funny. <laughs> uh, but the last <laughs> laugh might be on us. Yeah. You know, um, I think, um, you know, there, there can be too much drawn, you know, from that event to, uh, you know, Trump's election. But um, I, I don't think even people who are relatively sympathetic to the cause really get the force of white supremacy in, in America. They, they could not believe that, you know, uh, a man who had spent the previous you know, few years basically arguing that Barack Obama was not a citizen of the country and was not, who you know, em embraced a complete you know, uh, myth that Americans would actually elect that person. They, like they, 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 we have this perception. I mean, it's deeply unfortunate um, and it's deeply immature um, that in order for a democracy to work, that people have to be essentially good, that they can never act out of avarice, that they can never act out of cruelty, out of, out of, out of a desire to punish. A, a much more mature worldview would say that people are in fact human. The American people are not, are not gods, that sometimes they do things that are horrible and perhaps we should have protections in place you know, against uh, our better, or our, our, our worse, I should say, impulses. But you know, we just, we, 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 we can't, Accept it. I mean, even at this very moment, you have people talking about, you know, uh, uh, the economy, economic anxiety. Who has been more economically anxious than black people in America? We've been economically anxious for, for 400 years. We did not go out and elect, uh, uh, um, I'm running out of words to describe Donald Trump. We did not go out <laughs> and elect Donald Trump. I think that just says enough. Right there, I'll just say his name, I'm, you know, and so uh, it, it's very hard to accept that some portion of white Americans believe that it's very important to be white, by which I mean believe that it's very important for people who have a certain ancestry and a certain, you know, skin complexion to be in power. It's hard for us to, to, to accept that that's true of our country, despite the fact that, you know, if you look at the history, it should be true. It makes sense. Take some questions now. Um, can we have the house lights up so I can see? That'd be handy. Um, I'll start with uh, this person over here. Hello. Hi. I just want to start off by saying thank you, and I miss your presence on Twitter very much. Mm. Um, you should be happy I'm gone. <laughs> it's better for everyone. Um, my question has to do with uh, kind of the concept of a colored diaspora. Mm. So. I think in your writing, In Between the World and Me, you touched upon your experience in witnessing the black diaspora in your time at Howard. Mm -hmm. And especially with Black Panther coming out mm. earlier this year, there was this kind of uh, reckoning with what a world in which colored people were, in which colored people who were not enslaved would look like. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I'm not black, mm -hmm. um, but I can, 
relate to the experience of colored persons around the world in kind of like uh, on a broad abstract sense. Sorry, can you, can you bring this to a question? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of sorry. people do want to ask I'm, questions. Th that was my next Thank sentence. you. I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to know if you think there is a use for a kind of all-encompassing colored diaspora, right. or have we not reckoned with our own cultural diaspora trauma right. to get I, to that? Sorry. Yeah, probably so. Um, you know, the thing that I, I, I have to warn you about, though, that happens is, um, you know, I, because you write a book, that, um, well, you know, you end up with an audience like this. Um, it, it does not automatically make you more perceptive. I am not a particularly well-traveled person. Um, I'm not, uh, I think in many ways I'm still, you know, quite provincial, you know, in, in my understanding of the world. Uh, part of that is being American. Uh, I think we tend to be more provincial, regrettably. <laughs> Apologies, guys. Um, <laughs> But to be frank, also part of that is being a black American. Uh, because, you know, travel is, you know, very much a, a luxury. It's a resource that, you know, I really didn't have, you know, access to until I was in my late 30s. And so any sort of sense of internationalism, you know, of a diaspora was, for me, like, a, a imaginative. You know, I, I had it as, as an idea, you know. Um, my hope, you know, over this, you know, second half of my life is to see more of it. I have to say, I'm entranced by coming here and seeing people who call themselves black. But, like, I don't even know where to place them. You know what I mean? Like, as, like in, in my sense of, of what that means. That's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? I'm not, you know, it's actually kind of beautiful, in fact. But I, I, I don't have, like, a, um, a, a way of seeing that. You know, I have broad, general, you know, notions of what people have done you know, uh, to folks when they wanted to take things from them and how they've, you know, associated that with, with, with skin color, but how it fits together, I can't quite do it the way, like, I can do it between the world and me or a case for reparations. I'm just not at that level yet. Thank you. We'll go to number three at the back there. Hello. Hi. I'm a high school teacher at an all-boys secondary school, and what I've struggled with in my 10 years teaching is this... Um, I have this confusion over this increasing lack of empathy and humility and wisdom, like you said, um, in my students. Hmm. And I've read a lot of um, your essays and I followed you for years at The Atlantic. And what I've noticed about you, what makes you stand out is your extraordinary humility in the way you write and the storytelling that you do. And um, I'm wondering, like, help me understand how that was nurtured in your childhood and your young adulthood and whether or not that's something that I can teach as a teacher, um, and was that like you being a black person, is that a necessity to that kind of humility? No, um, <laughs> but it does help, it does help. <laughs> you know, because the world beats you down. Um, <laughs> again, I, you know, I had to go back to this thing I was, I was saying before, you know, I, I um, I wasn't the smartest kid in my neighborhood. I certainly was not the smartest kid in, 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 my, in my school. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I feel very fortunate to be here, but I mostly feel fortunate uh, because I know that, you know, whatever my talents, whatever my hard work, it, it's pretty clear to me that luck played a role in this. You have to understand, you know, I write about this in my book, We Were Eight Years in Power. Um, in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, I was in an unemployment office. 
that was, you know, I was dependent, literally dependent on the state, you know, to, 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 to feed my child. I, I couldn't sell my writing anywhere. What, what changed? I don't think I got that much smarter. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've read more since then, you know what I mean? But that's not, you know, what, you know, the, the success is actually tied to. I was the same person. I had been writing for, God, 12 years by that point. And I couldn't get a job, you know what I mean? Before that, I was, you know, delivering food. I had lost jobs repeatedly over and over again. So if there's a key, I think, A, you know, part of it is remembering that uh, intelligence does not entitle you to anything. It really, you know, doesn't, especially when you're black. You know, it just doesn't mean things are necessarily going to, you know, go your way. I know plenty of people more intelligent than me who, you know, uh, do not get to sit before a crowd like this. But I, I think the second part of it is just recognizing how much fortune is actually at work. Um, it, I'm pretty clear it didn't have to happen like this. You know, um, I have a way that I see myself, and that doesn't shift because the world sees me a, a certain way. I remember who I was and who I've always been and, and you know, who I am. Uh, number four, hello. Hi, um, I'm gonna steer a hard left into Marvel. Um, <laughs> so my question's about Captain America and white supremacy. So I know you've just recently, I think, finished up a tenure in writing with Captain America. No, no, I just started. Just started. Okay. Yeah, don't, don't, don't throw me off the book yet. Sorry. <laughs> Third issue's out this week. <laughs> so um, in the comic book universe, there's a number of different narratives where Captain America dies and the mantle's either taken up by Bucky Barnes, who's white, right. or Sam Wilson, who's Falcon and he's African-American. And uh, one of the theories for the upcoming Marvel film is that Cap dies. And I was wondering what you think the cultural impact would be if on such a wide-reaching stage like the Marvel films, if we had someone like Falcon. Um, so if we had so basically, what the cultural impact would be of having an African-American Captain America, especially when the mantle of Captain America is fighting for liberty and justice, and that's often not extended to the African-American community. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm going to say something really, really weird. Um, <laughs> I like blue-eyed, blonde Captain America. <laughs> and, and I like it because uh, what... Blue-eyed, blonde Captain America is supposed to be, it's actually quite genius, is a projection of um, the American, which is necessarily, you know, uh, at that period of time when he was invented, the white American imagination of itself at its, you know, highest level, and that includes, you know, the phenotype. And this person having to look back on the country, which so often falls below <laughs> what, what that imagined thing is, when, when, when that person is black, they're not shocked to find that the country <laughs> falls below. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, Sam Wilson been seeing this all his life, you know? Um, Steve Rogers is, again, you know, as I said, you know, all of these things that we think of as white, but also born, you know, in, in, in 1918, I believe, you know, frozen in time during World War II, at this point that, you know, America calls its greatest generation, comes, you know, back, you know, here in this time with all of our ills and all of our problems and has to reconcile the dream with the actual reality. I like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed 
white Captain America having to do that work. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I, I enjoy putting him through the paces. You know, it's, it's fun. And, and I don't say that, you know, like, I love the character. I really do. I, lo I love Steve Rogers, you know what I mean? And, and, and I love writing, you know, uh, uh, for that particular character. I have to say I probably would be less attracted to him if he were African-American for those particular reasons. I've got time for just one more uh, gentleman over here. Thanks. Thank you so much again for coming out. It's a real honor to hear you speak. Uh, in, in the book, you talk about the fear and then the anger, particularly when Prince Jones uh, passes away. Um, but one of the paragraphs that struck me the most was when you talked about, and I think it's the line where you say, that those that loved you the most were the ones that were hurting you the most when you talk about the, the beatdowns and, 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 and that coming from the family. And one of the things I wanted to ask about was, how have you been able to, if at all, forgive? Uh, how do you move past that now that you're a father? Do you, do you get to forgive, or do you just accept that's the way it was? No, it's not hard. To, I, I, don't, I mean, it was never even forgiveness that was needed. Um, what I understood was in... First of all, you know, the majority of parents, black or white in America, at that point in time, beat their kids, period. I mean, that was just true, so there was nothing particularly... Um, exceptional in that sense about the African-American community. The other thing is the African-American community is largely a Southern community. Uh, and by vast numbers, you know, Southern Americans tend to, you know, be more religious, you know, not spare the rod. But I think in addition to that, one of the interesting studies that you see about black parents is even black parents who do not beat their kids, they actually punish harder than white parents. So if their method of punishment is to take away the PlayStation where a white parent might only take it away from one week, they take it away for two weeks. Why are they doing that? Are they doing it because they hate their kids? Are they doing it you know, because they want to inflict pain upon their kids? No, they're generally doing it because what they're trying to instill in that child is that the world does not have time for your mistakes. It just doesn't. Um, I'm not happy that that's the way things were when I was a child. Um, I certainly tried to steer a different path with, with my kid, but I understand. I understand, these are parents with not many options. You know, um, I was, you know, the sixth or seventh kids. Every, you know, one of my dad's children graduated from college except me. You know, um, I don't um, stand in too much judgment in terms of what they had to do to get those kids, you know, out, given the lack of resources and how, many, how much more resources other people have. And they still beat their kids anyway. I want to take the liberty of asking you the final question. It's kind of a big one, too, in the time we have, I'm afraid. Um, but there's, me. Yeah. Can I take yeah. some liberty and claim land rights and ask a question? Yeah. I beg your pardon? As an Indigenous woman. Sure, go ahead. I'm, I've got to work to time, Hi. I'm afraid. Go ahead. I've got to work to time, I'm afraid, yeah, but you. please. My name's Aletha. I'm such a huge fan. I may as well confess to everybody here. I've done it all over Twitter. I love you. You're awesome. Thank you. Two comments, bro. Can I ask you... What was the point of the Kanye essay? What was the, the point? Other, yeah, what was the point of the Kanye essay? Mm. And the other question I would like to ask you is, um, Cornel West, what's good? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I've got 33 seconds and there's two gigantic questions there. Um, the, uh, the Kanye West essay, you might need to give it a tiny bit of context there with that, thanks. Yeah, I mean, um, at the time I was uh, teaching, I still teach uh, at NYU, and I went into class and Kanye, oh man. <laughs> Kanye has said slavery was a choice. Um, th this, this is hard. 
uh, I have a family tree in my office, and I can see the people in my family that, that were enslaved. Um, it's difficult to hear a black person say something like that. Uh, this was a point in time where kids were literally being stripped away at the border uh, from their parents. And Kanye is endorsing the person that's, that's doing that. It was tremendously, tremendously hard because Kanye only has a career because of the very people that Donald Trump is inflicting pain on. Um, there's no Kanye music without the deep, deep trauma uh, of the South Side that he comes from and that black people have endured. Do you think it's fair to find Kanye like that? Wait, can I, can I finish, though? Sorry, we need to fight. Can I finish? Let me, let me, let me just finish. Um, I wanted to, A, understand why. That was the point. The point was, first of all, to understand why and how somebody actually comes to do something like that. Um, but the second part of it was to speak for all of those students in my class that were deeply injured by what Kanye West did. I, I, I cannot emphasize how hurtful it is when you have the mic and you have people who are literally living under the lash of somebody. And you take the mic and you endorse that. It, it, it's not just words. You know, um, I, I live in a city where... I, I, I live, you know, in, in, in a city, New York City is in New York State, and months before Trump had given a lecture, you know, to these, you know, deputies in New York, where he literally encouraged them when they arrested people to bang their heads into the, the roof of the car as, as they arrest them, literally endorsing, you know, police brutality. I think when you do that, you should be brought to account. Now, that's not all that essay was about. You know, as I said, part of it was, you know, an, an attempt to understand, you know, um, but the other part was, 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 was that there should be some accounting for that. Um, in terms of your other question, in terms of, you know, Cornell West, um, I would not be here talking to you without Cornell West. Um, I think he's a remarkable scholar. I think he's a brilliant, you know, intellectual. I think those of us who, you know, are, are in this generation are all the product, you know, of his hard work. Um, I read Race Matters when I was in college, changed my life. I saw Cornell West at least three times when I was at Howard University. Um, I'm sorry he's not a particular fan of mine, um, but everybody isn't going to be a fan of yours. That's not how the world works. You know, um, I, I wish him the best. I look forward to, you know, his, his, his next book. Um, and in the meantime, my job is just to keep writing. Thank and you on so that much. note, ladies and gentlemen, please thank Tanahazy Coates. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. That was the wonderful Ta-Nehisi Coates with Richard Feidler at Antidote 2018. For more from Ta-Nehisi, check the show notes. We have a bunch of articles and links waiting for you. Next week's episode of Ideas at the House features the world's most famous whistleblower, Chelsea Manning. Catch you then. <laughs>